another Monday. My head is a little bit sore because it was St. Patrick's Day yesterday. We are the Religious Studies Project. I'm Chris Carter, and I am joined from across the other side of, well, the city, in, in <laughs> yes. the other side is, I don't know, by my host, it's David Robertson, of course. And this explains why uh, you had to be at another meeting at quarter past 11 yesterday morning. <laughs> I hadn't realised it was St. Paddy's. Oh, it's not. No, no, I'm getting my time streams mixed. Exactly. Yeah, yeah that was... We're in the future. We're yeah, the that, future. Was, that was the actual date, not the date of broadcast. I'm going to stop talking yeah. and uh, Chris <laughs> is going to introduce the episode. Yeah, so it's the second podcast from our new interviewer, Chris Black. And she's been speaking with Nancy Ross about um, Mormon garments and agency, although we're not supposed to say Mormon anymore, the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints. So take it away, Chris and Nancy. The form of garments has changed over time, from wrist to ankle, single piece, long underwear, to versions that included short sleeves and legs, to the two-piece styles that are common today. One of the most difficult aspects of studying garments is that talking about them is a transgressive act. Today, join us as we talk about garments. I'm here with Dr. Nancy Ross, Assistant Professor at Dixie State University in St. George, Utah. Welcome. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here. So let's talk about garments. I should first probably begin by explaining what garments are. Sometimes they're referred to as warm and magic underwear by popular media. And that's a bit of a tricky thing, Mormons say that. That's, that's like super offensive. But they are religious underwear that committed Mormons wear night and day for their whole lives. What do you mean by committed Mormon? So you can go to church if you're on a Sunday, if you're a Mormon. And they recently shortened it to two hours. And the whole world, Mormon <laughs> Used world. Used to be is, three. Right? The whole world, Mormon world is celebrating. But... In addition to Sunday worship, there are also opportunities to for further worship or deeper worship or deeper commitment. Mm -hmm. And those happen in LDS temples. So the full name of the people talk about the Mormon church. They're typically talking about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Mm -hmm. Or um, I'm going to use the shorthand LDS church. Okay. And there are a number of LDS temples throughout the world. They're generally very fancy looking buildings. And only committed Mormons can go inside them. And inside they make kind of further and deeper commitments to their faith and to God um, through a number of different ceremonies, typically through the initiatory ceremony and the endowment ceremony. And in the initiatory ceremony, Mormons re receive garments, and that's kind of the starting point for wearing them for the rest of their lives. Okay, and at what age do they become committed Mormons? So typically Mormons go through, we talk about it as going through the temple for the first time. Mm -hmm. And that often happens just prior to young adult Mormons going on a mission, typically maybe age 18 or 19, or it happening just prior to marriage. Okay. For both men and women. For both men and women. Yes. Okay. And so not every Mormon would be committed in this sense. Is that right? C correct. Many adult Mormons are, but not everybody does this in quite the same way. I have some adult Mormon women friends in their late 30s and 40s who have chosen never to make this 
deeper commitment. I think that there are aspects about the commitment that make them feel uncomfortable. Right. So talk about that a little bit, about why mm-hmm. it's such a transgression to talk about garments. So everything that is associated with the temple is, Mormons would say it's sacred, not secret, but mm-hmm. it's also secret. Also pretty secret. It's also pretty secret. <laughs> um, and so the, the idea is that something is so sacred that you aren't supposed to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And so Mormon temple ceremonies definitely fall under that category. You are supposed to experience them with your bodies, but you don't necessarily discuss in great detail their meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, even in, even in Mormon circles, I certainly never have been or haven't often been part of discussions with highly committed Mormons about the meaning of temple ceremonies, but it's something you're, you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And, and then garments become the evidence or the, the daily reminder that you have made that deeper commitment to the LDS church. Mm-hmm. Okay. And in your work, you talk, it's a qualitative study mm-hmm. and you did a questionnaire. Yes. And you really, it seemed like you were pushing on the idea of identity. Yeah. So, so I have a co-author on this uh, particular study. Her name is Jessica Finnegan. And what happened is that at the time we decided to do this study, Jessica and I were both committed Mormons at that time, but struggling with the practice of wearing garments. We were both involved in Mormon feminist circles. Yes, it's a thing. (laughs) And garments often came up as a topic of discussion, right? This taboo topic often came up as a topic of discussion within Mormon feminist circles, which are prone to talking about the things you were not supposed to talk about. (laughs) We felt that in order to understand our experiences and our frustrations better, that we wanted to study the problem. Mm. And so we decided that... It would be difficult to recruit interview participants to be interviewed about garments because that seems very awkward and kind of inappropriate, um, particularly in a Mormon context, but that rather we would send out a survey and that people people could participate in the survey anonymously and tell us what their garments meant to them. We collected a lot of demographic data. We collected, we asked people about their Mormon belief, you mm-hmm. know, if they agreed or disagreed with particular statements. Mm-hmm. We asked them a lot of questions about garments and how they felt about their bodies. What did it feel like to wear garments? What did their garments mean to them? And how they engaged in the practice of wearing garments. Mm-hmm. There's just this just wasn't a very open open conversation at mm-hmm. the time beyond my Mormon feminist circles. And I just really needed to know. I was really struggling with issues of faith and the practice of wearing garments. And we just needed to, un- I just needed to understand if, if it was just me. Yeah. Okay. So you mentioned uh, in your work this word friction. Yeah. And it sounds like there was a spiritual friction for you. Yes. And you also mention it as a physical experience for many women, especially wearing. Talk a little bit about that. So in the sociology of religion, uh, there are a number of frameworks that we often use to describe particularly women's experiences in gender traditional religions. Agency is a mm-hmm. very common one. I have used agency, um, but also embodiment. Um, embodiment is also something that's discussed quite a lot um, in scholarship of religion circles these days. And the and I, I'm still relatively new to embodiment. Agency is something I've used more. But um, as I understand kind of the framework of embodiment or the theory of embodiment, it's the idea that 
our bodies can produce religious knowledge or like knowledge um, about religion. And so through the through the kind of life cycle and the and, and our practice of religion. So you're talking like a Gertz type of experience here? Little, a little bit. Gertz type? Little okay. Bit. Yeah. Um, but that, you know, and, and really also just, I think the way that our bodies interact with, you know, even going back to like Judith Butler, like, oh, uh, like, oh like, I see. Like, okay. like, you know, that, you know, our, our bodies perform right. religion okay. and, and our performances aren't necessarily conscious and, and like super intentional. It's just like the stuff of life, right? And the okay. stuff we do unconsciously. And for Mormons who come to our garments, it's just like what you do. It's your underwear. It's what you do. You just put them on. Okay. And so over time, this particular practice was difficult. Initially, you know, when I first went through the temple and received garments, it was prior to my being married. I was 23. Mm. I was a grad student. And I was, I knew that, right, like this, that there's a certain weirdness about the practice. Mm -hmm. But I, I was framing it in my mind, like, this is what it means to be an adult in my community. Mm. And, and, you know, and, and at 23 and being unmarried, I hadn't really felt like a full adult in my community. Does that, does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And I felt like by going through the temple in preparation for marriage, by receiving and then wearing garments daily, that I was, you know, becoming a fully fledged and recognized adult in my community um, by making this deeper commitment and then by wearing the garment daily, day and night to kind of represent that commitment. And I, and I was okay with that. Um, that, that, that wasn't something that initially bothered me that there, there, there were like, I don't know, you know, discomforts. I always felt like my garments were trying to climb out of my neck hole <laughs> for my shirts. And I always felt like that, but initially it was just fine. It's like, this is what it means to be an adult in my community. You know, this is its own kind of coming of age sort of ritual. Mm -hmm. This is what this means. And so, and I was okay with that for a really long time. But then when I became pregnant with my first child, my body changed shape in very dramatic ways. I am a short person. And so my body became very round mm. very quickly. And the garments that I had did not easily accommodate or created additional mm. discomforts for my body. And so there are pregnancy and maternity garments. There are nursing garments that are supposed to help facilitate changes in the shape of women women's bodies. But many Mormon women acknowledge that like, Maternity garments and nursing garments do not do this very well. They are not very accommodating of mm -hmm. the change in women's bodies. And so I go through this change. I have an emergency cesarean and I'm in the hospital for a while and I'm trying to figure out how to manage, you know, the waistband of my um, garment bottoms with my cesarean scar, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and, and, and just the stuff of life, mm -hmm. right? And the stuff mm -hmm. of, you know, many women's lifespans. Mm -hmm. um, and then after my first pregnancy through the process of nursing and then quickly getting pregnant with the second child and going through, you know, very dr more dramatic changes in body and then having at the end of that two very tiny children and not handling that especially well and mm. feeling kind of depressed, but also feeling like I've been through this big life thing and my body has changed and this practice that was once okay and it was fine. The practice of wearing garments. Practice of wearing garments. It was fine. You know, I understood it in a particular cerebral way, and mm -hmm. that largely worked. You know, it was okay. Then it became less okay. Mm. It became trickier. Um, 
I don't know if this falls into the category of too much information, so you can <laughs> you can just let me know. But some Mormons feel like you have to have to wear the garment underneath your bra. Right. And that can make nursing an infant very difficult, right? Because if you're trying to like get access to your breasts to like feed your child and you're subtly having to sort out not one or two layers of clothing, but, but like several <laughs> a whole raft of layers of clothing that quickly gets cumbersome you know uh-huh. and if you spend like your life breastfeeding which is which you do if you breastfeed an infant that's a lot of difficulty and a lot mm-hmm. of like wrestling with your clothing mm-hmm. eventually i changed my practice so that i was wearing garments under but that felt a little bit scandalous it's still yeah like to me and, and other women would say that that was fine but that was not necessarily presented to me as being fine because i had understood that i had to wear the garments against my skin only mm-hmm. yeah, and so so anyway, lots of information okay. about the, Nancy's garment. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, so 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 this practice that was initially uh, fine, and uh-huh. I understood in a particular con- context, and it made sense to me, it's just that as my body changed, and as my need to interact with my body changed, particularly through like the practice of nursing and mm-hmm. just growing into a very different shape, suddenly that did not work well. Mm-hmm. And suddenly things like waistbands became very uncomfortable and just too much fabric and endless tucking. You know, I was just always trying to like re-tuck in my underwear and, 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 and that became very frustrating. That's part of my embodied experience mm-hmm. in my garments where initially it was okay. And I felt like this was in harmony with my religious beliefs. Yes, it was fine for, you know, God to require this of me as I believed at the time. But then garments represent the LDS temples and they represent covenants that people that Mormons make in LDS temples covenants of commitment to God and church Mm -hmm. and so they're like an extension of the LDS temples they're an extension of a particular kind of belief in God and commitment to God and so as that symbol became more and more difficult to manage in my Mm -hmm. life Literally, there was more friction with my body. I was still trying to, post-pregnancy, I was still trying to figure out what this new shape of my stretched out body was like. Mm -hmm. And my new kind of stretched out and nursing body did not accommodate garments very well, like my pre-pregnancy and nursing body had. And so this daily, everyday practice suddenly became very difficult at the same time I had committed to wearing these day and night for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. And I felt very committed to my religious belief. And I didn't feel like I could really do anything. Like I, I felt a little bit trapped mm. in this particular practice. And so that's when, you know, I meet Jessica. We start writing papers about modern <laughs> feminism. And, you know, we're complaining about our garments. I'm like, but let's study this. Let's figure out if other women are experiencing the things that we are experiencing. Uh-huh. And we figure that survey is the best way for us to do this. So we, you know, go through an IRB process and, you know, like write this survey. And when we put this survey out um, online, we used a snowball sampling method. Mm-hmm. Um, I, we realized has some problems. If you're trying to create a representative sample, we determined that this would not be a representative sample, but would give us some data about people's experiences and how they felt. We actually got more than four and a half thousand responses. Not a small number. (laughs) Yeah, not a small number. And it's more data that you can analyze Uh, easily. That's for sure. Right, right. And it turned out that a lot of people had very different experiences with their garments. Mm. And in a sense, it was comforting to find out that 
there were many women who had had far worse experiences with their garments than Jessica mm-hmm. and I had had. Sorry to interrupt the episode, but we just wanted to let you know to remind you about our Patreon link. Uh, The Religious Studies Project has always been free since its inception, um, but we know that there's a great problem in academia with uh, people not being paid for the work that they're expected to do, particularly early career scholars. And we at the RSP want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. So you can help if you can spare even one pound a month um, by going to patreon.com slash Project RS and subscribing. We know that these podcasts are very useful for people who are teaching and people in their learning. So if you can help um, either by subscribing there or by making a one-off donation using the PayPal button on our website, it'd be greatly appreciated and will help us keep bringing you this podcast for free and fight against exploitation in academia. But now, back to the episode. But also... There seemed to be people that had problems and seemed to be people that didn't have problems. Mm. Um, and there seemed to be people who were just fine with the practice and that was working for them very well in their lives. Um, and there, where there was no friction with body and belief. Mm-hmm. And there were other people like me who were really struggling. There were people who had stopped wearing their garments. Garments had become, you know, one reason or another, such a really big issue. Mm-hmm. One thing we see, we kind of saw in the data, garments largely look like men's underwear so it like if you think of men's underwear as like a t-shirt and you know some boxer shorts garments are white versions of those with some special sacred lds temple markings and so they're not the full body coverage no they're not the full body coverage (laughs) yeah that that wouldn't work in my desert location (laughs) um but and for women you know it's it's like a cap sleeve shirt okay with um like shorts Knee length shorts? Yeah, knee length, yeah, knee length shorts. Okay. And, um, and what we found is that, you know, for many men, like, you know, their garments look like the kind of underwear that they would wear, even if they weren't Mormons and hadn't been through the Nothing temple. Nothing foreign to them. Right. You know, I mean, you know, markings and the requirements. Right. But, but not. But not fundamentally different. Mm-hmm. But for women, there were very different issues because women's bodies change through the lifespan mm-hmm. in ways that men's bodies do not change. And, they women's garments don't look like women's underwear you know um you know if i were to identify you know like regular standard secular women's underwear <laughs> as right, like a camisole and panties mm-hmm. this this was a lot more fabric mm-hmm. and a lot more covering right um women's garments until fairly recently were edged with very itchy lace uh. all over that's also very visible um because it creates a ra- very distinct raised line mm-hmm. So that, that is visible um, through outer layers of clothing. So our data really gets us into what a garment, what people's garments mean to them, and also how do how are garments functioning in Mormon community? What do garments mean? What are people's experiences with their garments? How do the garments make them feel? Mm-hmm. How do garments impact sexual relationships and marriage relationships? And you know, we just asked a whole raft of questions. And then we were hugely surprised when people seemed really eager to answer these questions because it seemed like this might be too taboo. Right. But when we asked the questions, an overwhelming number of people were willing to answer. And so we were able to get a lot of really great data, which was pretty exciting. Yeah. From a research point of view. Right. So it kind of sounds like 
and, and I know that people will be putting these pieces together themselves already, sure. is that in a patriarchal society yeah. designed by men yeah. that really police women's bodies in every way already, it's not a big surprise that they would be designing underwear for them without their bodies, you know, without especially their sexualized bodies in yeah. mind. So is that something that a lot of the respondents talked about directly, or is that just kind of an implied thing that you can kind of infer? No, what? a lot of respondents talked about body issues very directly. Mm. The, the, the data is just like data palooza, and we're still trying <laughs> to pick out all of the meaningful, the most meaningful elements uh-huh. of this data. But, um, but this is, one thing is clear about, so very loosely, about half of women experience their garments as interfering as interfering with their sexual relationships with their spouses is really divided half and half half of mormon women that, that we surveyed again mm-hmm. it's not generalizable right, right. that we surveyed um feel that it does impact their sexual relationships and half feel that it doesn't and so that's a per- that was a pretty like tidy mm, divide yeah. many men reported that not that they felt that they're own garments were unattractive necessarily, but they reported that their wives wearing garments was kind of put them off sex, mm-hmm. you know, like that they were unattractive mm-hmm. and that that created like a problem in their intimate relationships. And so, and so that was really interesting that, you know, men weren't really concerned about how they looked in their garments, but they were very concerned about how, how their, their wives looked. looked in their garments. We didn't, we didn't really get uh, women saying that they were concerned about the way that their husbands <laughs> looked in their garments. But we got a lot of women saying that garments impact the relationship they have with their bodies. Mm. So for some of these, that was that was like in terms of feeling sexy and attractive. Mm-hmm. For some women, that was like a literal deadening of the senses. Mm-hmm. So women, some women felt that garments deadened their senses and kind of prevented them from being able to feel. Mm-hmm. Some women felt that that the ugliness or unattractiveness they felt in their garments had impacted their life in other ways. Some connected eating disorders with wearing garments. Oh, wow. right, right, and 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 so and so it's not just about sex and sexiness. Mm-hmm. It's about women's relationships with their bodies, mm-hmm. and garments were definitely impacting women's relationships with their bodies in a variety of ways where men's bodies didn't seem to be impacted in the same way. It's not to say that men's bodies are not impacted by garments. Right. But but largely they seem to be impacted differently. Mm-hmm. And so and and it's not just these different like mental, emotional perception issues. Women also had um, and reported hundreds of women reported medical conditions that were caused or exacerbated by wearing garments. Mm-hmm. So the making of garments is controlled. I can't just, you know, learn to sew one day and whip myself up, you know, garments mm-hmm. in a fabric or, you know, in a cut that, you know, suits me exactly. And you're not supposed to modify them either. No, you're not supposed to modify them. Right. You're supposed to wear them as you receive them. And, you know, you go to, you know, Beehive Clothing and, and buy them. So there's a particular distributor. You have to go to a particular place. And there is a little bit of choice in fabric and cut, but not very much. Mm-hmm. And so what women experience then is that hundreds of women um, experience yeast infections, which are triggered by garments, urinary tract infections, which are triggered by garments, problems with managing menstruation. Well, when the latest version, the two-piece version of women's garments were created, 
I think women largely wore sanitary pads and belts. Mm -hmm. Right. And like, and I, that is not a thing I remember. I think my mom had one. I think it was like in the bathroom drawer somewhere. But so it didn't, so the form of underwear didn't really matter because managing menstruation seemed to be different. different. Right. It happened differently. But today, you know, it's very common to like, you know, you know, sanitary products with wings, right? Right. And, And garments don't accommodate many contemporary menstrual products very well. Right. And so that creates a kind of messiness and and, and a problem mm-hmm. in addition to pregnancy and nursing. Mm-hmm. So, and, and other women reported additional autoimmune disorders or various various disorders that were impacted by the wearing of garments. Mm-hmm. Some women overheated very quickly as a result of wearing, um, because again, this isn't like, well, you don't wear a camisole if you don't want to wear a camisole. You have to wear the additional layer mm-hmm. um, on top. I live in the desert. You know, wearing garments in the de- desert was very difficult. It's, it's uncomfortable. Yeah. So I, I'm hearing that friction is happening then on another level. I think yeah. we need to kind of reinforce this idea or maybe remind listeners yes. that there's this idea of gender being eternal Yeah. within Mormonism. Mm-hmm. So it's really a physical body embodied religion yeah. in that sense. So when you're having this problem with a gendered body mm-hmm. wearing religious symbols yeah. and both are supposed to be eternal. Mm-hmm. Am I reading that right? That that's how this friction, spiritual friction comes right. into play. Right. So the physical issues can become sources of spiritual friction because if God is somehow God and your promises to God and your relationship to God are somehow embedded or represented in the garment, mm-hmm. then like physical friction with the garment or medical problems mm-hmm. or difficulty difficulty with menstruation or pregnancy or nursing or what whatever that is, all those problems can then create a feeling of disconnection with God. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you are beginning to resent the garment and needing to, and having to wear the garment and having committed to wearing the garment, then what can sneak in there is a feeling like I don't like that God has required me to do this. I'm feeling resentful towards God or my faith or my church, Mm -hmm. you know, to, you know, for this to have happened. And so those symbols then are not positive reinforcements of commitment and identity, but rather they transform, can transform into something negative. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then there's a real disconnect between people who were like, no, garments is a beautiful wearing, a beautiful practice. I feel connected to God through my, which is what many people mm-hmm. said. You know, I feel mm-hmm. connected to God. I feel reminded of the temple and the temple is this very special and sacred place. And that's a beautiful thing in my life. And so garments are a beautiful thing in my life. And I don't have physical problems wearing them. A real disconnect between, you know, Mormons who feel that way about mm-hmm. the garment. And then Mormons who are like, this is a disaster, you know, mm-hmm. and it's not only a disaster for me physically, it has really begun to impact my faith. Mm-hmm. Um, because through the difficulty of wearing the garment, we've introduced faith difficulties as well. Mm-hmm. Like the physical friction becomes the religious or spiritual or faith friction. And a cultural friction. Yeah. Because if you take them off, Yes, it's your underwear, and you want to say, well, who's looking at underwear? But, <laughs> well, a lot of people. <laughs> but in Mormon communities, these garment lines are very visible and expected. Right. And so it's an easy way to check. If I, if I were to be in a church um, setting and I were to notice that, you know, in the woman sitting next to me, 
that she didn't have the same garment line as ever, as everyone else, I would know that that there was something wrong with her. Maybe she had broken her covenant to continue to wear the garment or, you know, that she had done something in her life that had led the bishop to tell her that she had to stop wearing garments because a garment is a symbol of like the in-group of Mormonism, the inner group of very committed individuals. And Mormons use the word worthiness. Yes. So when you said something was wrong there, yeah. maybe that would be what would come to mind right. is that she's not as worthy. Right. right. Mormons meet with their bishop for what we call temple recommend interviews to gain access to the temple, which is, you know, a special and sacred thing. Um, but they have to be living the tenets of Mormonism in order to be able to do that. And to verify that they are doing that, they have to have what we call a temple recommend interview. And one of the questions in the temple recommend interview is about whether or not you're wearing garments night and day as instructed and covenanted mm -hmm. in the temple. And so you can't then continue to participate in the inner group of Mormonism um, if you're not wearing your garments. And so garments are connected. But and there are other things that happens in temples like. You may not, if you're not wearing your garments, you may not be able to go to your child's temple wedding mm -hmm. or a friend or other family member's temple wedding. Um, and, and that can create real isolation, mm -hmm. you know, to, to be wearing your garments is to be more included mm -hmm. in Mormonism. So it's not just a hierarchy in the culture. It's also a hierarchy in the religion itself and, and yeah. it's tied to your salvation. In yes. A way. Right. Because gar uh, temples are spaces that, that, reflect and represent um, the eternities and to a certain degree the afterlife in Mormonism. And wearing garments connects people to that sense of salvation in the afterlife. And so not wearing your garments is, I think for many Mormons, putting themselves in a spiritual jeopardy. Mm -hmm. And as well as a community jeopardy or potential loss of community status. And so there is so much pressure in Mormon communities for people to wear garments even though clearly, as our survey shows, there are many Mormons who struggle with this practice. Right. So not having that visible line, <laughs> that visible emblem of belief carries a lot of baggage with it. Yes. So in, in your presentation, you talked a little bit about the circular thing of going to the temple and being tied to family and the garments, and, and it was kind of self-reflective. Can you just kind of mention that again? Sure. Which is that so Mormons believe that uh, families can be together forever, and it is the temple ceremonies that people go through that bind them, or Mormons use the term sealing. Families are sealed together forever, and then garments are part of that reminding and part of that ongoing assurance of salvation, and then to stop wearing that practice is to put that in jeopardy. What is put in jeopardy? So it's not just being able to go to the temple that's a yeah. jeopardy. It's right. this right. unseen and, layer of And so many Mormons feel that maybe if they don't wear their garments or if they stop wearing their garments, that maybe they won't be with their family in heaven after they die. And that like that is that's, a big <laughs> that is a big weight. Yeah. Right? That is a big yeah. weight of expectation. Yeah. Where people clearly many people clearly expressed a loss of agency. They felt like they then couldn't make a choice 
to either create an adaptation for themselves mm-hmm. that worked. Maybe that would be to wear them sometimes, but not other times. But there was a real resistance to feeling empowered to adapt a practice of garments that would suit their own needs, mm-hmm. but rather feeling compelled to wear their garments in the way that the community expected them to. And that, that was necessary for salvation in the Mormon context. Right. So the sense of identity is the identity within yourself, identity within your community, and identity of how you relate to God Yeah, in the eternity. That's pretty huge. It's pretty huge. <laughs> and, and you, and it's you hard to, to comprehend, really. Right, and you have to do it every day, yeah. right? And, and it's something that connects. But then, in, in many ways, that's part of the beauty of garments, mm-hmm. right? That you're connected to salvation right. the, through your underwear, right? Through the everyday... So- so everyday, yeah. So ordinary. Yeah. Um, and I think that for good reason, many Mormons find a lot of beauty in that practice. And I think that's what made me think of Geertz. Mm-hmm. That, you know, especially like, have you ever paid to St. Jude? Unless you've yeah. been in that, yeah. then you then you know what that means. It's mm-hmm. not just that you decide not to wear the camisole top one day. Right. That literally taking that off, yeah. taking is taking off a lot more than just a garment, right. a piece of material. Right. Um, garments also represent, like, ideas of spiritual or physical protection. So it's the sense that, like, that like God is watching over you. Mm-hmm. And in whatever, and people can interpret that more and less literally. But, like, the sense that God is with you and God is watching over you, and that's, that's manifest in the garment, um, you know, is, is both beautiful and troubling. Right, right, <laughs> right, and, and and so and, and people experience this uh-huh. as kind of beautiful or troubling. Religion Generally, is kind of that way, right? Religion, right? Religion is kind of that way, and so um, so it was just a very interesting and complex thing to mm-hmm. study, as it, as it turns out that when you imbue you know religious ideas into people's underwear, that it just gets into the everyday messy stuff of lives. Yeah, fascinating topic. And I think that there's a lot more that you will, you know, no doubt come out with as you yes. continue to go through the surveys. Uh, we look forward to reading more about this. Do you have anything published right now that is accessible? No, we don't. Um, we're working on, um, you know, we, we figure that garment, Jessica and I figure that garment is a very sexy topic. <laughs> and so we're trying to shoot for a higher tier of journal than we would normally go for in the, in the hopes of, capturing somebody's imagination of wanting to know about Mormon magic underwear. So Okay. So nothing yet, but we'll look for that on the horizon. Yes. And in the meantime, we wish you luck. Thank and you. And thank you for meeting with us today. Thank you very much. Very interesting uh, episode. There. And as we said last week, you know, that's the second in a sort of small series on intersections of fashion and clothing. And we actually have one more of those coming up next week. I'm just double checking. No, not, not next, next week. week. Not next week. Week oh, after next. Interspersing oh, them, yeah. That's right, yeah. Next week. Uh, not next week, the week after on uh, Muslim dress and the headscarf issue. But next week, what we do have is an interview with Megan Goodwin. And this is the first from uh, a new interviewer uh, named Andrew Henry. And let's find out who he is. 
Hello, my name is Andrew Henry. I'm a PhD candidate in the Department of Religion at Boston University. My research focuses on early Christianity and really the religions of the late antique Mediterranean world in general. So this includes Judaism and the various Greco-Roman traditions. Specifically, I study the materiality of ancient magic and demonology. So this would include amulets, curse tablets, and so-called magical gems that were used for healing or protection. And what really interests me and what's the focus of my dissertation is the intersection between artifact and performed ritual. So, for example, an amulet inscribed with a phrase from Christian liturgies, such as, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. This particular phrase appears consistently in authoritative contexts, like a late antique liturgical service, but it also appears on late antique amulets and inscribed on door lintels to protect your house from demonic invasion. I'm arguing to what extent that authoritative ritual inspired the production of the amulet, or inspired someone to view that liturgical phrase as ritually powerful. Very early on in my studies as an undergrad, I was interested in the hazy line between private and public religion, what we mean by religion and magic. So this research comes out of a desire to explore where these categories destabilize. As you can imagine, as someone studying objects, I draw a lot of inspiration from archaeological methods, but also from relatively recent theoretical studies on materiality. I see a lot of value in the so-called new materialisms, the theoretical turn that draws greater attention to object agency or animated ontologies. So this includes theorists like Jane Bennett. But more generally, I come to the Religious Studies Project with a greater interest in the public understanding of religion and using social media to reach wider audiences. Podcasts are a new frontier to me because I've been running a Religious Studies YouTube channel over the past few years, but I'm excited to try my hand at long-form audio discussions instead of short video productions. So I'm excited to be a part of this project and to see where it goes. Wonderful to hear from Andrew there, and um, you should absolutely check out his um, Religion for Breakfast YouTube channel if you haven't already. Um, he does a lot of interesting work there in quite short videos, engaging with a very broad range um, of scholarship and presenting it in, a, in an alternative format. So that's And interestingly... Interestingly, that's what the interview is about, challenges and responsibilities for the public scholar of religion, which I suppose we are in a small way as well, which yeah. I've never I've never systematically thought about it. So it's going to be a very interesting episode. Yeah, it is. And, and it offers reflections for people at all stages in their uh, in their academic careers. And it's an excellent interview. So come back next week for that. Um, yeah, we're in the fallow period for news. Just everything's trundling along. We're happy. Yeah. Are you happy, I, listeners? I, I can't hear you. Can you say it louder? Um, that's enough of that pantomime nonsense. Um, yeah, we're, we've just kind of set up the schedule now until the summer break coming up, um, which I think that's the first time we've actually uh, thought about that in any concrete way. Um, it's funny to see the year rushing past at this point, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you know, this has been fun, David. Um, indeed, indeed. We should stop <laughs> wasting people's time. Uh, thanks for listening. The Religious Studies Project is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The RSP is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation, charity number SCO 47750. 
brought to you by founders and editors-in-chief Chris Cotter and David Robertson and our managing editor Thomas J. Coleman III. Our features are edited by Jonathan Tuckett and our opportunities digest by Ella Bock. Podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock with audio editing by Gregory Schneider and Samuel Ward. Social media managed by Ray Radford and sales and marketing by Sammy Bishop. Don't forget you can support the project by using our amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com slash projectrs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, YouTube, iTunes and other portals.